So Molly's going to read us uh, the passage. I'm going to open us in prayer. She'll read us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. You said verses Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was afraid. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be the of bread. But he answered in his words, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels to guard you, and on their hands He will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on His servant. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You will shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels Thanks, Molly. Let's pray. Uh, Father, just thank you so much uh, that we can gather together in this backyard on this beautiful day um, and open up your word together. Lord, I pray that uh, each one of us would hear your voice in a special and unique way. I pray that this passage would, um, we would read it uh, with fresh eyes and and, uh, understand something new about you and about your son and about ourselves uh, as we explore this. Uh, amazing story that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing uh, in our uh, exploration of the gospel according to Matthew um, with this super strange story about Jesus in the wilderness having this kind of chess match battle with the devil. Um, And... Now, for some of us, I I think that this story is one that we may have heard and read so often that we miss how truly strange it actually is. Um, And that's been true for me for a long time. So, I mean, we think about this. There's there's really no other story in Scripture like this. Um, In the Gospels, this is the only story where there's no eyewitnesses except for Jesus. Okay, no disciples there listening to what he's saying, watching the things he's doing. Okay, so that's strange right there. There's nothing like that. Um, so that means that, how do we get this story? Well, Jesus must have told people about it. Okay. Um, the second, and we'll explore this, is there's really not too many instances where the devil has conversations with anyone. Okay, there's actually only three cases that are happening, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So it's a really strange story, super unique. Um, but again, I don't think we realize that. I know I, I hadn't realized that uh, because of how familiar the story can become to some of us who have heard it a lot or read it a lot. Now, I don't know about you, but, but this doesn't sound, this story of Jesus being in the desert, uh, conversing with the devil, doesn't sound like any experience I have ever had. And honestly, for a long time, it it was really hard for me to grasp the purpose of this story. The typical application to, you know, learn Bible verses to use, uh, you know, whenever temptation comes to kind of battle it um, just seemed insufficient for me. You know, I tried it. I did it. I I applied it. And just it always seemed like it was missing something. Also, it's been kind of hard for me to fully understand how this situation allows Jesus to relate to us. 
right? So, so uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And you look at this passage, and, and again, I, I, I see, was Jesus really tempted how we were? Because I don't know about you, but the devil has never shown up in front of me and started presenting things to me and trying to get me to do things. And I always thought that if the devil did that, if he showed up and, and started telling me to do certain things, I, it wouldn't be that hard to resist whatever he was telling me to do. I don't think I would need Bible verses. Simply the fact that the devil was present in front of me would make me not want to do whatever he was doing. So, so again, it, it's just been hard for me to see how this really you know, fulfills the things that it's supposed to fulfill as a story, uh, uh, causing Jesus to relate to us in our temptation, giving us examples of how we engage with evil and temptation. It just wasn't working for me. And I think that gets to the root of the issue with this passage, which is this. This, this story, or at least how I've always pictured it, simply does not reflect the way that I have ever experienced temptation. Temptation is often not easy to recognize or identify right away. It is more subtle, more subversive, more hidden. It comes through seeing or hearing something, but most often it, it actually feels like it forms internally for me. Most often temptation in my experience comes uh, from thoughts that, that seem to form within me. Um, so how does Jesus' experience, I don't know if you can relate to that, but how does Jesus' experience in this story address that? And my answer has always been, it, it really doesn't. This story for me has always been less helpful over the years and more a source of frustration. But as we established uh, a few weeks back when we started in our journey through Matthew, um, is... is when we take a fresh look at these stories and teachings of Jesus, we often find that Jesus is quite different than the ideas that we've formed about him in our minds. And as we get to know our savior for who he truly is, we grow in our understanding of ourselves. And I believe that this, this has been the case for me in this story. And I hope that's the case for all of us uh, tonight. I have found that in my imagination, the way that this passage has often been taught to me, that there is a lot of misunderstanding around this story. And in order to get a better understanding about, uh, of Jesus and of ourselves, we need to address some of those misunderstandings. So there's been two major misunderstandings for me, and, the, and these are the two things we're going to talk about tonight. The, f the first is the nature of this evil character called the devil. Okay, what, what is this? This thing, this person, whatever. Um, what's, what's he all about? And then, and then the second is the nature of the temptation or the test that Jesus experienced, right? It's nothing like I've ever experienced. So what's the point of it? What's the purpose of it? So those are the two things, the devil and the test that we're going to talk about. So first, let's talk about the devil. And then once we get a different picture of, of that situation, we'll, we'll kind of walk through the passage and address the temptation. So in this passage, this evil character that Jesus is engaging with receives three titles. Okay, first is the devil, and that happens four times throughout the passage. It's also the most common title associated with, with this character in all the New Testament. The second is the tempter or the tester, depending on your translation. That's used once in verse three. And then the last title associated with this character in this passage is Satan. Okay, Satan. 
and that's used uh, at the end, I believe in verse, I'm actually gonna flip to it. Um, I believe in verse 10, verse 10 uh, when Jesus addresses him directly. Give me a second here. So with the devil and uh, the titles, the devil and the tempter, those are titles that, that we've translated, okay? Titles that they're words in the Greek and we translated them to English to carry the meaning that they held in the Greek. But Satan is different, okay? Satan is actually a Greek word that we have taken um, and we've, we've made it a proper name of this character, okay? Satan, the Greek word is pronounced Satan, but it's just that Greek word talked about in English. And what that means, okay, the meaning of Satan is adversary, accuser, or opponent, okay? So it's not his name, but it's often how he's direct, uh, addressed directly, especially by Jesus, which happens twice um, in Jesus's life that we know of. And as I said, it may surprise us, uh, but the, the Satan, the Satan, doesn't actually appear that much in the Bible. This uh, authority figure among evil beings just doesn't uh, play that much of an explicit role. Okay, evil is present all throughout the Bible. Okay, so, so he's, he's working throughout the Bible, but he's not explicitly addressed, and he often doesn't have engaging in, you know, conversations with, with people. There's actually only three cases, as I mentioned, where uh, the devil converses with someone. Okay. The third being this conversation with Jesus, which happens in all the Gospels in one way or another. Jesus has this interaction with this character. Okay, the other two are in the Old Testament. The first is the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3. In the garden, um, this serpent sows doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve, and he tempts them to disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we learn later that this serpent is actually the devil and he appeared to Adam and Eve as in the form of a serpent. Um, the second and, and the only other conversation that, that this, the devil has is in the book of Job, where we get this really weird look into like God's courtroom, and this character called the Satan uh, comes before God and says, hey, your servant Job is actually only faithful to you because you give him a bunch of stuff. And I, I don't know if you've read the story of Job, it's it's crazy, uh, but God actually gives um, this character the ability to do whatever he wants to Job in order to, to test Job's faithfulness to God. So those three cases are the only times that, that the, the devil is in conversation. And here's the key thing that we need to know about the nature of the devil. So all that summed up in this, um, and this has radically changed the way I understand this passage. The devil or the Satan is never given a physical body in the physical realm. Okay, never given a physical body. In Genesis 3, in the garden, the garden is this strange place where the spiritual world and the physical world kind of collide. Okay, there's, there's human, physical human beings walking around, but God's also walking around with them. Okay, and so it's not exactly the physical world. It's, it's kind of where these two worlds are, are joined. And obviously the devil appears in the form of the serpent, uh, a serpent to Adam and Eve. In Job, that's happening in heaven, okay? It's a spiritual realm. Um, the, the Satan is not described as a physical being. He's a spiritual being with angels and God and, and all that. Um, but then we have this story where, if you read it, you know, there, nowhere does it say the devil 
appeared physically before Jesus. And if you've always imagined this story as I have, this is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Um, but I, I think that if we, when we, we're not supposed to think of this as a physical interaction between Jesus and this char- physical character called the devil. And when we do that, we actually kind of miss the whole point of what's going on here. Um, and we are supposed to imagine Jesus alone in the wilderness, starving from hunger, wrestling with these questions. Okay. If that's hard for you to kind of uh, um, grasp or wrap your mind around, um, this might help. Um, in verse one, we see it says, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay. Now the spirit, do we ever imagine the spirit as a physical being? Okay, do we think that, that this, some, this spirit is like this, this physical person that appeared and led Jesus by the hand into the wilderness? No, it's a, we know that the spirit is spiritual. It's this invisible force acting on Jesus to cause him to go out into the wilderness. And I think we're supposed to think of the devil in a similar way. It's this invisible evil force acting on Jesus to try to get him to think and act in a certain way. Okay. So to reiterate, the devil or the Satan is not a physical being. There's no horns or pitchfork in the Bible. Okay. There's no grotesque, horrifying beast like we see in the horror movies. Satan is this evil spiritual force that opposes God and everything that is good. It far more often acts in ambiguity and deception, appearing as something harmless or even good, rather than obvious, visible evil. Okay, and I don't know about you guys, but that resonates a little bit more with my experience with temptation and testing and and all that. So, so now that we have this different perspective, um, let's let's talk about the nature of the test. So here's the big kind of paradigm shift that I believe that needs to happen for us to really understand this passage and the test that Jesus undergoes. And, and the reason I, one of the reasons I struggled with this passage for so long, and the, the point of this story is not to give us an example, not primarily to give us an example of how to engage evil and resist temptation. The point is that Jesus did what every single one of us couldn't. When faced with the test that we have all faced and failed, Jesus had victory. The purpose of Jesus sharing this story with his disciples and by extension all of us is that we would understand his victory and its implications for us. It is his victory, not his example, that informs how we should engage evil and resist temptation. So again, a little bit of a shift, but we'll see why that's important as we as we go on. So a brief recap, uh, two weeks ago, David gave us a look at Jesus's childhood. Um, And in Matthew 2, when Jesus was a young child, he and his family had to flee to Egypt because King Herod heard, you know, this king of the Jews was born and he felt like his role was or his authority was threatened. So he said, I'm going to kill this child. And so Jesus' family flees to Egypt. Um, They return, right? Matthew says they return from Egypt. And then fast forward, Matthew's telling us the story about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan He exits the Jordan and goes into the wilderness. We have our story here. So um, Matthew's selection and arrangement of these stories is very intentional. He comes out of Egypt. He goes through the water and into the wilderness for 40 days. 
And this may sound familiar, and that's because it follows the pattern of the story of Israel. Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness for what became 40 years, right? So it's a very clear pattern that Matthew is setting up, and he's pointing us back to the story of Israel for some reason. He wants us to remember, hey, Israel went through this similar thing, and now Jesus is going through the same sort of thing. Um, so why does Matthew want us to remember this story of Israel? Well, if you spent any time reading about the Israelites in the Old Testament, you probably know that the people of God failed time and time again to remain faithful to God. They constantly failed to live as God's children should. And Matthew is setting us up to see the point of this story that Jesus, the true son of God, accomplished what Israel failed to do. In the face of the test, Jesus remained faithful to his father when everyone before him failed. So, the test. Just before our passage, in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, um, it says this, A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So God shouts down from heaven, This is my son. I love him. I am pleased with him. And then Jesus is led into the wilderness. Forty days pass. He's terribly hungry. He is alone. And what gets spoken to him? If you are the son of God. Okay? There's a question, right? It's, it's, it's in doubt. That reality that, that God declared over him 40 days ago is in question. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So what is the devil doing here? He is highlighting Jesus's circumstance to try to get Jesus to doubt his identity. So God declares him as his son, whom he loves, but then this voice comes and says, are you really the son of God? Does God really love you? Look at your situation. This is no way for the son of God to live out here in the wilderness, alone and starving. If you were the son of God, do you really think you'd be going through this? Those are the kinds of things that that Jesus might be hearing as he hears this voice speak to him. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil is attempting to get Jesus to question his identity and question the goodness of God. And right there, that is the core of the test. The core of the test that Jesus is facing, the core of the test that all the way back in the garden that Adam and Eve faced, the test that Israel failed over and over again, the test that every single one of us face and fail. The devil tries to get us to question our identity and question the goodness of God. The devil knows that if he can get us to forget our identity as children of God, if he can get us to lose trust in God's goodness, then he wins. So how does Jesus do when faced with this test? He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which references Jesus's, uh, I'm sorry, Israel's journey in the wilderness. Okay, so again, Matthew's pointing us back. Jesus is identifying with this story. He references back to Israel's journey and he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, 3. As they journeyed through the wilderness, they faced hunger. And Israel began to question 
their identity and God's goodness. They said things like, why did God bring us out here to the desert to starve? We were better off as slaves in Egypt. God doesn't care about us. Look at the situation we're in. These are, these are the kinds of things that, again, they, they looked at their circumstances and they began to question. We don't see this exact conversation between the devil and Israel, but that's what was happening. All right, they were, there was these thoughts, these, these ideas put in their mind to question their identity and question God's goodness, and they fell for it. The Israelites faced the test and they failed. They believed the voice of the devil and they gave in to the doubt. But when Jesus faced the same test, he had victory. So Jesus' response, again, points us back, but it also has significance for his situation. Okay, he's not just pointing back to the story of Israel. This actually is significant for the situation he's in. So let's, uh, Jesus' response, it says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil is pointing out Jesus' hunger and suggesting that he may die if he doesn't make bread for himself. Jesus doesn't know how long he's going to be out there. Okay, he might die if he doesn't make bread for himself. Does Jesus need food to survive? He does, right? He's, he's a human. He needs food to survive. But food is not all he needs to truly have life. Jesus is pointing out that life is more than just survival. Life requires more than just food. Life requires purpose. It requires meaning. It requires identity and truth. Life requires relationship, specifically relationship with God. Jesus is saying, if I give in to this temptation, if I make bread out of these stones, yeah, I may survive this, but I'll be forfeiting the one thing that is the true source of life, the Father. And what specific word do you think Jesus has in mind here when he says, um, every word, he, man doesn't live on bread alone, but, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I think the word that Jesus has in mind is the word spoken to him 40 days ago. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's the word, that word that was spoken into him that gives him true life. By giving into this temptation, Jesus would be denying this truth that God had just declared over him. So Jesus passes the first test, but the devil is not done. It says, uh, our passage says, the devil, sorry, I keep getting lost here. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So again, the devil is attempting to sow doubt about Jesus's identity. He is trying to get Jesus to lose trust in God. So he takes him to the top of the temple. Okay. They're standing on top of the temple and we got to understand this is the place where, where God's present is presence is dwelling with his people. This is like the, the core of God's presence in the world, the temple. And then Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. So he's taking him to the temple. He says, okay, here's where God is. Here's what his word says. He says he'll protect you. So let's put that to the test. Let's see if you are the son of God. Because if you are the son of God, he's going to protect you. He's going to keep you from harm. So why don't you prove it? Throw yourself down from up here. And we'll see if God saves you. Now, what we're likely seeing here is, is probably a, a vision. Okay, so, so again, it, Jesus is not physically standing on top of the temple. 
Um, and this will become even more evident in the third test as we look at that. But this devil, the devil is placing this image of the temple in Jesus' mind. He doesn't actually need Jesus to throw himself off the temple. All he needs to do is cause Jesus to doubt, doubt his identity and doubt the Father. Because it's about the heart. It's not about his actions. It's about if, if Satan can win over his heart by causing him to doubt who he is and doubt who God is, he will win. So he gives him this vision of, of being on top of the temple. And the scripture that the, the devil uses here is really interesting. And it gives us a lot of insight into how the devil actually works. He's quoting from Psalm uh, 91, verses 11 and 12. And this Psalm 91 is a psalm about God's faithful protection for his children. It's a, it's a really great and important psalm. And it's part of a group of scriptures that would be recited. Okay, get this. It would be recited every morning... Uh, every morning service in the temple, okay? So what's happening here? Jesus in this vision is standing on top of the temple and what is he, he looks down, what does he see? He sees a rabbi, okay? And he hears the rabbi reading Psalm 91, okay? And then this thought comes in my head, in, into his head. Is this true? Will God protect me if I were to throw myself down from here? Okay, again, the, the, the devil, we, we, he's, I mean, I can relate to this so much more. He takes uh, external images and, and things we hear and thoughts that come into our mind and he uses that to try to throw us off, to, to try to distract us, to try to take our focus away from the Father. He, he doesn't always, he comes in forms of good at times. A rabbi reading this passage and this thought is, is presented to Jesus. So I, when I found that out, that this is read all the time in the temple, that, I don't know, that, that really blew my mind and kind of changed the way I view this. So how does Jesus respond to the second test? Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and this time, chapter 6, verse 16, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus isn't going to give in to the devil's games. He doesn't need to prove anything. And in fact, the irony here, and the devil knows this, is that if Jesus were to give in and test God, he would actually be failing to live into his identity as the son of God. And this is the devil's goal. If Jesus were to throw himself from the top and, you know, in the vision or whatever, even if God were to save him, he would be forfeiting his identity as the son of God by, by doubting that, okay, and, and listening to the voice listening to the voice. He'd be failing the test. But Jesus doesn't bite. And you've probably guessed by now that the verse Jesus recites, again, points us back to Israel and their failed test in the wilderness. The full verse of Deuteronomy 6, 16, I have it right here. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. And I, I think this was really interesting. It just gives us a good insight as to how we all fail this test and how Israel failed this test. But the story of Massah is found in Exodus 17. And I'm just going to read it to you guys real quick. And again, we don't see the conversation. We don't see this. Like Jesus gives us an insight, and we'll talk about this at the end, as to what's happening here in Israel's story. But you hear the things that Israel says, the people of Israel say. You hear the concerns they have, and you, you just see it. You see how the, the, the devil is working on them to get them to, uh, uh, 
deny their identity and deny God's goodness. So here is Exodus 17, starting in verse 2. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel, quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile River. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. And he called the name of the place Massah, or Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, and hear this, Is the Lord with us or not? So the people of Israel, after being set free from slavery in Egypt, miraculously delivered through the Red Sea, after God declared them to be his people and promised to care for and provide for them, after God rained down bread, rained down bread from the sky to feed them every single day. This happened in Exodus 16, right before this, uh, this story that I just read. God was raining down manna to feed them every single day. And they say, they look at their circumstance and they say, is God with us or not? Because if we were, we wouldn't be thirsty right now. We would have more water. If we were, we wouldn't be wandering around this desert. Okay, again, the voice sp spoken to them caused them to doubt God and doubt who they were and that God cared for them. But once again, Jesus accomplished what they were unable to accomplish. Jesus remained faithful to God in the face of the test. All right, the last test here. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So the devil takes a different approach in this last test. There's no Bible verses, no questioning of his identity. None of that is working with Jesus. So he makes this massive offer. He offers him everything in the world, all the nations, all the kingdoms, all the cities, all the people, all the riches within those. He offers that to Jesus and he says, all you have to do is worship me. Pledge your allegiance to me and not God. Now, as far as like how we imagine this, how it's taking place, and, and again, I referenced before that uh, why, why this is probably a vision. The tallest mountain around where Jesus was in Judea is slightly shorter than House Mountain, just east of us here, if you've ever been up there. Okay, and you know, if you're up on House Mountain, you can almost see all of Knoxville. Okay, so there's no mountain where Jesus could have walked up to see all the kingdoms. Okay, the tallest mountain, he, he probably barely would have seen Jerusalem. Okay. He could have transported to, to, I don't know, maybe Mount Everest, but, but even from there, you can't see all the kingdoms. The point is, again, and, and this all throughout, the point is, we're not, it's, it's not about what's physically happening. This is something that is going on in Jesus' mind, something that this evil force is, is acting upon him that he is wrestling with. And that's the point. 
Okay, not what's actually happening here, happening here physically. The devil is presenting Jesus with these thoughts and images in order to influence his mind and ultimately win over his heart. So the devil offers the world to Jesus. Does he have the authority to do that? Okay, that's, that's kind of strange, I think, for some of us. Does, does he own the kingdoms of the world? He clearly has influence. There's a lot of evil in the world. The world is full of corruption and greed, lies and deceit, violence and war. These are things that are not of God's doing. So they're, they're evil. So, so the devil clearly has influence in the world. Paul in, uh, in Ephesians 2 calls the devil the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Okay, he's giving him this, this title that, that he actually rules in this world. You know, we talk a lot about God being in control, which I think he is, but, but the devil has a lot of authority in this world. And that's kind of concerning, I think, for me at least. Like, how did this happen? How did the devil get so much authority in God's world? Well, let's turn back to Genesis 1 briefly, and we'll actually find out how he got that. So I'll read it to you. You Don't feel like you have to go there unless you want to. Um, We're going to read verses 26 through 28. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Who did God put in charge of the earth? Us, right? Us. As his image bears, in God's desire to name us as his representatives, this crazy display of love and and and. Uh, just giving of himself, he put us in charge of his creation. He gave us authority to rule over his creation. And what did we do? We failed the test. And when we failed the test, we faced evil. We doubted our identity as God's children, as his image bearers. We doubted God's love and goodness. We were ultimately deceived by the empty promises of evil. And we gave over our authority over the world to the devil. We handed over God's creation to sin, death, and destruction. This happens in Genesis 3, verses 1 through, uh, I'm going to read through five, 6. The serpent was the cleverest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. On the day he asked the one, uh, one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat. From the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, said the serpent. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious, and she desired the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. From that moment, God's image bearers pledged their allegiance to evil, not to God. We handed over our God-given authority to the devil. 
But God would not abandon his children. Though we were unfaithful to him and have been ever since, God promised to remain faithful to us. A few verses later in Genesis 3, uh, verse 15, God promises to one day raise up a human who would crush the head of the serpent, a human uh, who would do what no other human could, a human who would take back authority over God's creation. That is what Jesus came to do, to deal with this evil force that has been distracting, deceiving, and destroying God's image bearers since the garden. And it began with this test in the wilderness. For the first time when faced with the test, the true son of God said, get out of here, Satan. I will never worship you. God is the only one deserving of worship. So yes, the devil has authority in this world, but it's only because we've handed it over to him. As God's image bearers, we've given him the ability to rule in this world. But Jesus came and he took that back. And this was the start of Jesus's mission, his mission to establish God's kingdom here on earth and the mission that culminates on the cross. Jesus reclaimed God's rule over the world as God's ultimate and faithful image bearer. So what do we do with this? How do we live in light of this passage? How does this change the way that we interact with God, uh, with evil, with temptation? There's two, two things, I'm sure there's more, but two things that I think are important to take away from this. Uh, the, uh, the first one being, um, this story gives us a better uh, understanding of how temptation works in our own lives. Okay, it gives us a better understanding of temptation in our own lives. Understanding the dynamics of this interaction between Jesus and the devil uh, gives us a better understanding of how the devil works in our own lives and how Jesus views temptation in our lives. And this goes back to my own journey in regards to this passage where I just felt like it really didn't speak to me. It didn't, it didn't apply to me. Um, I saw Jesus' Jesus's experience here as completely different from my own experience with temptation. But if we remove this, this theatrical imagery that distracts us from the point of the story, Jesus isn't conversing with this physical grotesque monster. This isn't the scene of a horror movie. This is real life. If we remove that from this story, it begins to make a lot more sense. And the one reason that Jesus shares this experience with his followers is to say, you, you know that voice that keeps coming into your head and you keep hearing in your head? You know those thoughts that come to your mind? Those doubts that you can't get rid of? That is not some internal issue that you just need to deal with. That is evil. That is demonic. That is Satan trying to distract you, deceive you, and destroy you. We need to realize this. It says this in Ephesians 6.12, and this is just such a great verse for this, this passage here. It says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a battle going on that we cannot see, but we are very much a part of it. Our biggest problem is that we have minimized evil to uh, only horrifying imagery or demonic possession. Things that we can see with our eyes that are just so obvious. But as Jesus reveals to us in this story, evil is far more subversive, ambiguous, and deceiving. It appears as something harmless or even good rather than obvious, visible, and grotesque. 
So understanding this story and how the, the devil is working on Jesus helps us to better understand our interactions with evil and temptation. The second thing that this passage helps us uh, uh, understand is if we are in Jesus, we share in his victory. Okay, we share in his victory. Even though each one of us has failed this test, each one of us has failed to live into our identity as God's image bearers. We have all doubted God and failed to put our trust in him and his word. Even though that is all true, Jesus acted on our behalf. Jesus did what none of us could do. Jesus is the perfect son of God, the image bearer that we were unable to be. Jesus was victorious over evil by living a life of unbroken faithfulness to God. When he faced this test, he said, get out of here, Satan. You have no power over me. Jesus took back authority over God's creation by not pledging allegiance to evil. Then Jesus went to the cross. He died the death that we deserve, taking our place so that we could join him in his place. Jesus identified with us in our brokenness so that we could identify with him in his holiness. So here's the point. This story is not about giving us an example on how to pass the test. If you are in Jesus, the test has been passed for you. Your identity is not determined by your own ability to overcome evil. If it was, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Your identity is found entirely in Jesus. And the devil knows if you are in Jesus, he can't have your allegiance. All he can do is distract you from who you are and what God has called you to do. But you are the one with the authority, not him. He only has authority if you give it to him. When those voices come, when you find yourself asking, are you sure? Am I sure that I'm God's child? Look at your situation. God doesn't love you. Look at what you've done. God couldn't forgive someone like you. If God really cared about you, how would he let that happen to you? When those voices come, when you hear those voices, whatever they say to you, and I think it's different for all of us, but you need to recognize them for what they are. And you need to say, get out of here, Satan. You have no power over me. Jesus has defeated you and I belong to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to do what we could not do. Thank you for not abandoning us when we failed to live into our identity as your image bearers, God. Thank you for not taking that away from us but offering it back to us completely free and, and, un, and you know, undeserved, completely undeserved, God. I pray that we would, now that we have been given back our identity in Christ, that we would live into that identity, that when those voices come and we, we, are, we are caused to doubt our identity and who you are, that we would recognize those voices as not something internal that we just need to deal with or wrestle with or suppress, but as evil acting upon us, trying to distract us, trying to deceive us, trying to destroy us. And we would turn towards those voices and we'd say, get out of here, Satan. You have no authority over us. So God, lead us through this time of worship. May we hear these words and sing these words and may they just sink to our hearts, God. And may we leave here and, and, and walk as victorious image bearers completely uh, uh, with our identities completely founded in the victory of Jesus. Amen.